Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! The climate crisis, the curtailment of reproductive rights, authoritarianism, these threats aren't looming. They're here now. If you believe Democracy Now!'s reporting on these issues is essential, please sign up for a monthly gift of $5, $10, or even $20. Go to democracynow.org to make your donation right away. Oh, and your gift will be matched dollar for dollar by a generous donor. Thank you so much. From New York, this is Democracy Now! Just moments ago, on the House floor, we passed by overwhelming numbers the ability to keep government open for the next six weeks. The House and Senate voted Saturday to keep funding the federal government for 45 days, but the House is in a state of turmoil as far-right lawmakers threaten to oust House Speaker Kevin McCarthy for working with Democrats to pass the spending bill. We'll get the latest from Capitol Hill and look at the legacy of California Senator Dianne Feinstein, who died at the age of 90 last week. She was the longest-serving woman to ever serve in the Senate. Then, October is National Domestic Violence Awareness and Prevention Month. We'll look at the remarkable story of a domestic violence survivor, Tracy McCarter. She's a nurse and grandmother who was jailed after her husband died of a stab wound when she defended herself during an altercation. Her imprisonment sparked outrage across the country. I stand with Tracy. 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 I stand with my mom. Today, Tracy McCarter joins us for her first television interview since her murder charge was dismissed almost a year ago. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The U.S. Congress narrowly averted a government shutdown Saturday, just hours before a midnight deadline, in an unexpected reversal. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy agreed to a plan with Democrats and a majority of Republicans to keep the government running until November 17th. The bill does not include aid for Ukraine, but it does earmark $16 billion for disaster relief funds. The measure quickly passed through the Senate and was signed by President Biden late Saturday. House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries claimed the victory for the American people after the bill's passage, saying it followed a, quote, complete and total surrender by right-wing extremists, unquote. Biden castigated Republicans for once again manufacturing a crisis over funding the government. The brinkmanship has to end. And there should be another. There shouldn't be another crisis. There's no excuse for another crisis. Consequently, I strongly urge my Republican friends in Congress not to wait. Don't waste time as you did all summer. Pass a year-long budget agreement. Honor the deal we made a few months ago. Florida right-wing Congress member Matt Gates said Sunday he will move to oust McCarthy as House Speaker following passage of the Democrat-backed bill. Far-right Republicans had demanded steep spending cuts and funds to further militarize the southern border. 
Meanwhile, New York progressive Congressmember Jamal Bowman has apologized after he pulled a fire alarm as House Democrats considered McCarthy's bill before a rush vote on the stopgap measure. Bowman said he thought pulling the alarm would open a door and that he was not trying to delay the vote. House Republicans and the Capitol Police have launched investigations into the incident. California Governor Gavin Newsom has tapped LaFonza Butler to fill the Senate seat of Dianne Feinstein after her death Thursday. Butler is a former labor leader at the Service Employees International Union and current president of EMILY's List, which helps elect pro-abortion Democratic women to public office. LaFonza Butler— would be the first openly gay U.S. senator representing California and fulfills Newsom's pledge to appoint a black woman to the post. But despite her union background, Butler more recently advised Uber as it fought the California law requiring app companies to grant workers employee benefits. Newsom had ruled out naming a current U.S. Senate candidate for the seat, including progressive hopeful Barbara Lee, though LaFonza Butler could decide to join the race as interim senator. The body of late Senator Dianne Feinstein was flown back to California Saturday. She'll lie in state at San Francisco City Hall Wednesday, ahead of funeral services Thursday. Tributes continued to pour in for Feinstein over the weekend. Raised in an abusive home, she went on to become the first woman mayor of San Francisco. She was a pioneering figure in U.S. politics, as well as the first woman to lead the Senate Judiciary and Intelligence Committee. She spearheaded the 1994 bill— banning semi-automatic firearms. Feinstein remained to the right of the Democratic Party from her time as a law and order mayor of San Francisco through her support of U.S. wars and invasions, including in Iraq and Afghanistan. In 1982, she killed a bill that would have allowed domestic partner benefits for same-sex public employees in San Francisco. Former U.N. weapons inspector Scott Ritter said on X this weekend he briefed Feinstein on the lack of evidence that Iraq possessed weapons of mass destruction. Yet she went on, like most of the Democratic Party, to back George W. Bush's illegal invasion of Iraq in 2003. Ritter added, quote, the blood of thousands of Americans and hundreds of thousands of Iraqis stains her soul, he said. In 2014, Dianne Feinstein insisted on releasing a report on the CIA's detention and interrogation torture program following 9-11, calling the CIA's practices a stain on our values and on our history, unquote. More recently, Feinstein drew ire after she condescended to children in her district who came to her office asking her to sign on to the Green New Deal. She chided the young activist, telling one 16-year-old, you didn't vote for me. New York Governor Kathy Hochul declared a state of emergency Friday as torrential rains brought flash flooding to the Hudson Valley, Long Island, and New York City streets. The deluge turned highways into raging rivers and brought half of New York's subway system to a halt. More than eight inches of rain fell on JFK Airport in just 24 hours, an all-time precipitation record that Governor Hochul blamed on the climate crisis. And, of course, we know this is a result of climate change. This is, unfortunately, what we have to expect is the new normal. It makes us be more prepared than ever before. And it requires us to focus on resiliency, to head off the horrific impacts that could be there if we're not ready for the next storm.
Meanwhile, New York is under another air quality alert today, triggered by smoke from record-shattering wildfires in Canada. In labor news, United Auto Workers ramped up their strike Friday as Union President Sean Fain called on 7,000 more workers at a Ford and a General Motors plant to walk off the job. We're still talking with all three companies, and I'm still very hopeful that we can reach a deal that reflects the incredible sacrifices and contributions our members have made over the last decade. But I also know that what we win at the bargaining table depends on the power we build on the job. It's time to use that power. It's the second escalation since the strike against Ford, GM and Stellantis began two weeks ago. Amid skyrocketing CEO compensation, workers are asking for a 40 percent raise, better benefits and an end to tiered wages. Separately, some 4,000 UAW members who work for Volvo's Mack Trucks plants in Pennsylvania, Maryland and Florida agreed to a tentative deal, staving off a possible strike there. Meanwhile, 75,000 health care workers for Kaiser Permanente could go on strike from Wednesday through the end of the week. After their contract expired over the weekend, talks have failed to yield a new agreement as workers seek higher pay, better staffing and improvements in their pension plans and other benefits. The strike would affect Kaiser workers in California, Oregon, Washington, Colorado, Virginia and Washington, D.C. In Mexico, two Mexican migrants were killed Friday in a shooting near the border city of Tecate in Baja, California state. Three others were wounded. The group of 14 migrants were crossing the Cochuma Hill in the middle of the desert, a site that's sacred to local indigenous communities and a common route used by drug traffickers and human smugglers. Mexican officials said the cause of the shooting is not known. Harsh border policies have forced migrants heading to the U.S. border to rely on smugglers and crossing through remote and dangerous areas where they're vulnerable to extortion and violence from Mexican law enforcement and drug groups. In related news, at least 10 Cuban migrants were killed and over a dozen others injured Sunday after the freight truck they were riding in crashed on a highway in the state of Chiapas near the border with Guatemala. Another migrant from Ecuador also died in a crash in the city of Mexicali across the border from Calexico, California, after being taken into custody by Mexican immigration officials whose van hit a bus and then a utility pole. At least 10 other migrants from Guatemala and Colombia were also wounded in Saturday's accident. In Slovakia, former Prime Minister Robert Fico emerged as the leading candidate to head a coalition government after his Russia-friendly party won the largest share of votes in Sunday's parliamentary election. He's called for negotiations to end Russia's war in Ukraine and campaigned on a pledge to halt armed shipments from Slovakia to Kyiv. He previously said— Allowing Ukraine to join NATO would mean the beginning of World War III. On Sunday, Pizzo said a top priority of the new government should be to crack down on asylum seekers and migrants crossing Slovakia's border with Hungary. One of the government's first decisions must be a government regulation to restore border controls with Hungary. And yes, that's all there is to it. And I stand by it. It won't be pretty pictures. Force may be needed to solve the migrant problem. The liberal progressive Slovakia party, which came in second and supports arming Ukraine, said it'll try to form a coalition government to prevent FISO from taking power. In Spain, right-wing opposition leader Alberto Núñez Feijó has failed in his bid to form a new government, clearing the way for acting Prime Minister Pedro Sánchez to win four more years in power. In order to clinch another term, Sánchez will need to win the support of two Catalan parties who are demanding amnesty for hundreds of Catalan separatist activists arrested during mass protests in 2017. This is a pro-independent student activist in Barcelona. 
He wants to to respect uh, the Catalan nation. Uh, he has to uh, do some steps to go for the amnesty and for the self determination. So he has to choose if he wants to put uh, Spain uh, back to the to the right and the extreme right parties in the power, or uh, he wants to to progress and go for the future and respect the Catalan people. Voters in the Maldives have elected opposition leader Mohamed Muizu as president of the Indian Ocean Archipelago. He won 54 percent of the vote in Sunday's runoff election, defeating the incumbent president, Ibrahim Mohamed Soleh, who cultivated strategic ties with India. Mohamed Muizu oversaw several Chinese-funded infrastructure projects in the Maldives and is more closely aligned with Beijing. In California, protesters gathered in the city of San Pablo Saturday to condemn the proposed construction of a $43 million police training center and shooting range. The city northeast of San Francisco has already fenced off a massive piece of land where the complex will stand, directly across the street from the San Pablo City Hall. Protesters invoke the fight to stop Cop City in Atlanta, where dozens have been charged with domestic terrorism over their opposition to that site. This is a San Pablo demonstrator speaking anonymously for safety. It's no wonder that after 2020 and the, the most massive sort of upsurge of, of anti-police um, antagonism in, in the United States, that the proposed plans for uh, police training facilities are popping up all over all over the country, right? So they want to better prepare, um, basically, for a counterinsurgency, um, to better prepare to police and murder black and brown communities um, and people who um, seek to establish their freedom. Donald Trump arrived in New York City Sunday night ahead of his appearance in court today for the start of his civil fraud trial. A judge last week agreed with New York Attorney General Letitia James that Trump, his two sons and the Trump Organization unlawfully inflated the value of their assets to obtain favorable loans and lower insurance rates. James is seeking $250 million in damages and a ban on Trump doing business in New York. Meanwhile, in Georgia, Scott Hall, one of Trump's co-defendants in his election interference case, pleaded guilty to five criminal counts related to efforts to remove and tamper with election equipment. Hall, a Georgia bond bailsman, is the first co-conspirator to plead guilty. As part of a deal with Fulton County prosecutors, he's agreed to testify in future proceedings and receive five years probation, along with a fine of $5,000. And the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine has been jointly awarded to doctors Catalan Carrico and Drew Weissman, whose work led to the development of the mRNA COVID-19 vaccines. That technology is now being used in research for other illnesses, including cancer. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. Coming up, the House and Senate vote to keep funding the federal government, but the House is in a state of turmoil as far-right lawmakers threaten to oust the House Speaker. We'll get the latest and look at the legacy of California Senator Dianne Feinstein, who's died at the age of 90. Stay with us.
As long as long as you follow by Fleetwood Mac. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The House and Senate voted Saturday night to keep funding the federal government for 45 days. But the House is in a state of turmoil, as far-right lawmakers threatened to oust House Speaker Kevin McCarthy for working with Democrats to pass the spending bill, which averted a government shutdown. The final vote in the House on the stopgap spending measure was 335 to 91. All but one Democrat supported the measure, which was opposed by 90 Republicans. The bill did not include any aid for Ukraine. The Senate had previously approved about $6 billion in new aid for Ukraine, but that was stripped from the final bill. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy spoke to reporters Saturday night. Would I have wanted the bill we put on the floor yesterday that would secure our border, cut wasteful spending? Yes, I did. But I had some members in our own conference that wouldn't vote for that. So if you have members in your conference that won't let you vote for appropriation bills, doesn't want an omnibus, and won't vote for a stopgap measure, so the only answer is to shut down and not pay our troops, I don't want to be a part of that team. I want to be a part of a conservative group that wants to get things done. Less than 24 hours after the House passed the spending bill, Republican Congressmember Matt Gates of the House Freedom Caucus told CNN he would introduce a motion to remove McCarthy as Speaker for working with Democrats. I do intend to file a motion to vacate against Speaker McCarthy this week. I think we need to this rip week. off the Band-Aid. I think we need to move on with new leadership that can be trustworthy. Look, the one thing everybody has in common is that nobody trusts Kevin McCarthy. He lied to Biden. He lied to House conservatives. He had appropriators marking to a different number altogether. And the reason we were backed up against the shutdown politics is not a bug of the system. It's a feature. The drama over a possible government shutdown was just one of the major stories on Capitol Hill over the weekend. On Thursday night, California Democratic Senator Dianne Feinstein died at the age of 90, the longest-serving woman ever to serve in the Senate. On Sunday, California Governor Gavin Newsom tapped LaFonza Butler to temporarily fill the seat. Butler is the president of EMILY's List. She served as an advisor to Vice President Kamala Harris's 2020 presidential campaign. She's a former leader of the union SEIU in California for the home health care workers. But more recently, she advised Uber as it fought the California law requiring app companies to grant workers employee benefits. Butler will become the only black woman in the Senate and California's first openly LGBTQ plus senator. The Congressional Black Caucus had urged Newsom to pick Congressmember Barbara Lee, who is already running for Feinstein's seat. Katie Porter and Adam Schiff are also running for the Senate seat. To talk about all of this and more, we go now to California, where we're joined by Sasha Abramsky. He's the West Coast correspondent for The Nation. His new piece for The Nation is Dianne Feinstein's empty seat. His recent piece for Truth Out is a small cadre of GOP hardliners is pushing U.S. toward government shutdown, which, Sasha, in fact, did not happen. Uh, so can you talk about, first, the drama on Saturday night? Uh, and what's going to happen to House Speaker McCarthy? Yeah, good morning, Amy. It's good to be on. Um, what happened Saturday night was an entirely predictable consequence of what McCarthy did in order to become Speaker last year. Basically, 
it took 15 votes to become speaker. And to get there, he had to make all kinds of promises to empower the far right of his caucus, people like Matt Gates, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, and so on. It was entirely predictable that if you gave power to bomb throwers, that they would throw bombs. And sure enough, they did. What they tried to do was shut down the basic functioning of government. Uh, you played a clip of McCarthy saying, well, I've got a part of my caucus who just won't vote for omnibus spending bills. Well, if you're running in government, you're in Congress, and you refuse your basic obligation to pass omnibus spending bills to keep government open, you're responsible if at the end of the day, the TSA aren't paid, the military aren't paid, if Head Start programs start to shut down, if WIC can't pay its recipients, if the SNAP program can't pay its recipients, if people going on holidays to national parks find that the parks are shuttered. And McCarthy realized that. He realized that if he let the government shut down, the Republicans would be blamed fully and squarely for the consequences. McCarthy is nothing if not an opportunist. What McCarthy wants is political power. And so at the end of the day, McCarthy cut a deal with Democrats to keep government open. Now, again, it's entirely predictable, given the fact that he ceded the right, the power to challenge him if a single member of Congress wanted to challenge him. It's entirely predictable that within minutes of that compromise, Matt Gates had thrown another bomb and said, look, I'm going to be challenging you. I'm going to be making a motion to vacate the speakership. And that's the drama that's going to be playing out this week in Washington, D.C. It's a crisis entirely of Kevin McCarthy's own making. So you have the far right Congress member Matt Gates challenging him as speaker, but the Congressional Progressive Caucus uh, will not back him either. There's absolutely no reason that the Democrats of any stripe, progressive or mainstream or however you want to define them, there is no reason the Democrats should bail McCarthy out. Look, McCarthy launched an entirely spurious impeachment inquiry investigation into President Biden. It was, an in, it was a fishing expedition. There was no evidence there. There was no smoking gun. There was just this hunch that McCarthy had that things weren't quite right, and therefore he launched an impeachment inquiry. Well, if that's McCarthy's strategy, why on earth would the Democrats not sit back and watch him squirm? And I suspect that's exactly what they're going to do this week. If they want McCarthy to bail him out, at the bare minimum, they're going to be asking him to put a halt on the impeachment inquiry. And of course, that impeachment inquiry hearing that took place on Thursday, um, the Republicans' own witnesses said there wasn't enough information, uh, like a lawyer, like Attorney it Curley. Was sort of joyous, it was sort of joyous to watch. It was amateurville. I mean, th this was this was not politics of a high caliber. This was the most ill-prepared, ill-thought-out poorly advised Republican inquiry you could possibly imagine. Uh, you contrast it with the meticulousness of the investigations and the hearings into Donald Trump for what he did around Ukraine, for what he did after January 6th. You contrast it with the January 6th committee hearings, the bipartisan hearings where Liz Cheney went out and said, look, here's why this is so dangerous to democracy. That was meticulously prepared. What the Republicans did the other day, it was a partisan show it had no merit, and it was entirely amateur. And then you have the issue of the funding of Ukraine, which is not included in this bill, though the Senate had voted for $6 billion. Michael Bennett, the senator from Colorado, almost um, um, uh, scuttled the deal. And then you have that one lone Democrat who voted against the deal in the House, uh, uh, Quigley from Chicago, uh, also based on the stripping of funding for Ukraine, Sasha. 
That's right. Quigley is the chair, I believe, of the Ukrainian caucus in Congress, and he was absolutely furious that that funding had been stripped. Uh, what I find so fascinating about this is the absolute vault fast that the Republican Party has done on foreign policy and on national security since the beginning of the Trump years. If, if you'd gone back 10, 15 years, the Republican Party were the party, self-proclaimed party of you know everything military, everything national security. You fast forward now and they're an isolationist party, or at least one wing is isolationist. More than isolationist, they're a pro-Putin party. You know, it's one thing to say, look, we don't want to be involved in wars. It's one thing to say we've got to have a debate about the size of the American military. That's fine. But it's completely extraordinary that a significant wing of the Republican Party is throwing in their lot with Vladimir Putin. It's also entirely predictable because during his presidency, time and again, Trump threw his lot in with Vladimir Putin. Well, if you're going to throw your lot in with somebody who's dictatorial, if you're going to throw your lot in with somebody who has done everything he can to undermine democratic systems, not just in the United States, but across the Western world, if that is your bedfellow, you're going to come to strange policy conclusions. And that's what we saw in this debate, that the only way Congress could pass an omnibus spending bill and keep American government open was ceding to the far right on the issue of Ukraine. Uh, completely extraordinary to watch. And I have, own, you know, I can only think it's going to result in all kinds of internal debates within the Republican Party, because there are people out there, people like Nikki Haley, people like Mike Pence, who in public are perfectly willing to say that strategy is crazy. It doesn't make sense to appease Vladimir Putin. And they are saying it in public. And I think over the next few months, as we get closer and closer to the primary season, that debate is going to become ever more public and ever more acrimonious. Uh, Sasha Bromsky, if you can talk about this latest news last night, um, California Governor Gavin Newsom tapping LaFonza Butler to fill the Senate seat of Dianne Feinstein. The significance um, of this interim appointment. I think it's an extraordinarily smart move of Gavin Newsom's. He put himself into a bit of a bind in 2021. He made a pledge that he would appoint, if he had the opportunity to appoint, an African-American female to the Senate. Now, the problem that he then encountered was in the interim, Barbara Lee, Katie Porter, Adam Schiff had all thrown their hat into the ring for the primary season in early 2024. That was after Diane Feinstein had announced that she wasn't going to run for re-election in 2024. Well, Newsom didn't want to tip the scales there. And I think he was very wise not to do so. You have an open primary. You have three extremely credible candidates, all three of which have very, very strong congressional records, and all three of which have put in a tremendous amount of effort to build up their political infrastructure in the run up to those primaries. So Newsom didn't want to tip the scales. And Barbara Lee was lobbying very, very hard to be announced as the interim senator. And I think quite rightly, Newsom said, you know what, I'm going to step back out of this fight. And so he turned to somebody who wasn't an elected official. He turned to the Emily's List president, LaFonza Butler. And she has a strong track record. She's got a strong record as a labor leader. She's got an extremely strong record as the president of Emily's List. She's defending LGBTQ rights. She's defending abortion rights. She's a very, very credible senator. And she obviously struck a good deal with Newsom because what he didn't extract from her was a promise not to run in 2024. So she's a caretaker senator. But if she wants to throw her hat in the ring and file paperwork by December 8th, she can throw her hat in the ring and become the fourth candidate for the open seat. 
Um, I think it's going to be a fascinating political time. I'm really, really glad that he appointed somebody so quickly. I think it could have been a very drawn out process. The Democrats don't have a big enough majority in Congress and the Senate for that to be a safe move. I think it was a far smarter move to do this quickly, to put somebody in power in, in the Senate and to move on, because now it means that the Democrats, again, have a workable majority in the Senate and they can start passing more legislation. I think he did something very sensible Isn't yesterday. this a slap in the face to Barbara Lee? Because his reasoning was that he didn't want to uh, tip the race, as you pointed out, with these three strong candidates. But unlike when McCain died and uh, Senator Kyle uh, came back, truly interim, was not running, um, he has now introduced a fourth person who could be a candidate, right, LaFonza Butler. And, of course, he had gone back on his word to appoint an African-American woman to the Senate after Kamala Harris became uh, the vice president. So he was going to do it. The question was, I mean, as late as Sunday, the Congressional Black Caucus sent him a letter um, saying he should appoint Barbara Lee, who would fill out the term and then run with the others. Yeah, I mean, Barbara Lee is clearly extremely unhappy by this. And, you know, to a degree, she's a little bit unlucky by the process, the way it's unfolded, the timing of Diane Feinstein's death and so on. But if you look at the polling, Katie Porter and Adam Schiff are pretty far ahead in the polling. And Barbara Lee's a distant third. If you look at the fundraising, the same thing holds. Katie Porter and Adam Schiff have built up these large political war chests. And Barbara Lee is far behind in the fundraising. Now, that's not because her politics aren't good. It's not because she doesn't have you know, a very noble history in Congress. I think at least in part, it's because Californians are looking for a generational change. Diane Feinstein was 90 years old. She was the longest serving female U.S. senator. Uh, Diane Feinstein had a very, very strong, very important history. You talked about it in your program earlier. But she was 90 years old and she should have retired years ago. If you're looking for a generational change, it's very hard to justify how you get that generational change when you shift from a 90 year old to a 77 year old, which is how old Barbara Lee is, I believe. It's much easier to see that you get a generational change if you shift to somebody who's in their 50s or maybe 60s and who's got a realistic chance of serving in the Senate for two, three, maybe even four terms. Now, LaFonza Butler fits that. She's in her 50s. She's young. She's dynamic. She, she could, if she makes a good, good effort at it, be there for a long time. And I don't think there's anything wrong with saying, look, we need to have an open competition to see who the next senator is going to be. And maybe Barbara Lee will win. Maybe when that competition is held, maybe when the open primary is held, of all the major candidates, voters will say, look, we like Barbara Lee's policies best. We're willing to overlook the fact that it's not really a generational change and we're going to go for Barbara Lee. But she's got to earn that. I don't think anybody has the right to say, I'm going to be the next U.S. senator. You've got to work to be the next U.S. senator. And that goes for LaFonza Butler. It goes for Adam Schiff. It goes for Katie Porter. It goes for Barbara Lee. So I think, yes, Newsom's going to attract some flack for this choice. But I think overall, he did something politically smart. And he did something that really is going to help keep the Senate functioning over the coming months. Uh, interesting choice. Uh, on the one hand, she was a union leader, represented home health care workers, for the SEIU in California. Um, more recently, of course, an advisor to Kamala Harris, uh, the vice president, and uh, advised Uber as it fought the California law requiring app companies to grant workers employee benefits. Yes, she did. And I think when we come to the primaries, if she decides to throw her hat in the, in the ring for the 2024 Senate race, when it comes to the primaries, that's certainly something that's going to be discussed. Because you're right, she has a very progressive track record with the SEIU, which is one of the better and most progressive unions in California, extremely effective. 
And yet at the same time, as you said, she's been on the wrong side of this issue with Uber. And, you know, California has had a whole bunch of labor disputes. It's had a whole bunch of legislation around labor. And it's had this initiative that was trying to essentially treat Uber drivers and Lyft drivers as employees, which they are. They should get benefits. They should get paid sick time. They should get health care. They should get retirement. And they don't. And she's lobbied very hard on the side of Uber against that policy change. So I do think that come the primary, that's going to be something she has to talk about. If she decides to run for the Senate, she is going to have to prove her progressive credentials. I think there's no doubt about that. But I think she also has a very strong record over most of her career around union issues, around progressive issues um, that are dear to progressives' hearts in California and elsewhere, I think she's a very credible senator. Sasha Bromsky, can you talk about the legacy of Dianne Feinstein? It's huge. And, you know, you don't have to agree with everything she did or every policy statement that she made. But over the course of 50 plus years, she was a central presence in California politics. She was the mayor of San Francisco. She was one of the most effective senators in California history. She had some huge policy accomplishments. She took on the gun control, lo- the gun, the gun lobby, and she introduced significant gun control of high velocity, high power weaponry. And that was effective. It's now lapsed. And we're now seeing the consequences of that with these ghastly mass shootings. But in its day, her gun control measures were effective. She took on the CIA. In the aftermath of 911, when there was this sort of worldwide torture network at these CIA-run black sites, she took that on and she forced Senate Intelligence Committee hearings, these huge hearings that resulted in this mammoth report exposing just how deep the um, torture rot had gone. I think... I mean, this is extremely significant because she was actually going against President Obama, who didn't want the report released, and she was pushing for it. I wanted to go back to December 2014, the Senate Intelligence Committee releasing that summary of its investigation into the CIA's post-9-11 torture campaign. Senator Feinstein, at the time chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee, outlined the report's key findings. First— the CIA's enhanced interrogation techniques were not an effective way to gather intelligence information. Second, the CIA provided extensive amounts of inaccurate information about the operation of the program and its effectiveness to the White House, the Department of Justice, Congress, the CIA Inspector General, the media, and the American public. Third, CIA's management of the program was inadequate and deeply flawed. And fourth, the CIA program was far more brutal than people were led to believe. So that was, at the time, the Senate Intelligence Committee chair, um, Dianne Feinstein. Ultimately, though, um, she would support the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Your final thoughts, Sasha? Yeah, look, when when I heard her speak in 2014 at those Senate Intelligence Committee hearings, I thought it was one of the most effective policy interventions I'd ever heard because she laid it out to the American public, the moral stakes of going down this torture road. Now, that said, you're right. She was on the wrong side on a whole bunch of other issues. 
Um, she's a complicated figure, but my overall thoughts on Diane Feinstein, I thought she was an extremely powerful presence, an extremely dignified presence, and I thought the last few years of her life were tragic, and I wrote about it quite extensively for the nation. There was nothing that anyone could take pleasure in watching her decline over the last few years. She should have retired on a high note in 2018. She would have gone out with an absolutely extraordinary record. She decided to run for re-election. She ran. She won. And then the last few years were a very public slow decline, a physical decline, a cognitive decline. She clearly needed help performing basic functions in the U.S. Senate. And it was humiliating and it was embarrassing. And I don't think And the question was, really, in the case of Dianne Feinstein, was it her, was she capable of making these decisions? Or perhaps was it um, those who wanted uh, to ensure uh, that if Gavin Newsom made that promise for an African-American senator, that he did not choose Barbara Lee at the time, the three people who were running for that office, Nancy Pelosi in particular, whose oldest daughter became the sort of protector of Dianne Feinstein, um, and not wanting Barbara Lee of these three candidates when Pelosi's choice was Adam Schiff uh, to replace her as the senator from California. Yeah, I think there were clearly behind the scenes uh, machinations going on. That was very apparent. And there were negotiations going on behind the scenes around what would happen if and when she either retired or um, died. But I think none of that negates the fact that, you know, watching a public figure decline in the way that we watched Diane Feinstein decline over the last few years, it was really sad. And, you know, coming back to what I was saying, I don't think anyone did and I don't think anyone should take pleasure in watching that. It it was a real sort of terrible ending to a storied career. Um, She clearly wasn't performing at 100 percent. She clearly wasn't representing California at 100 percent. And by the end of her life, you know, there were these daily stories of confusion, of inability to sort of navigate the process and the system without, you know, extensive help from her aides. And I think it was very humiliating. And I think also it was a very public display of the risks of gerontocracy. You have so many senators, so many congressmen, you have so many top political officials who are very, very elderly. And the way the Senate works in particular, it privileges seniority. And so there's no incentive to retire. And I think, you know, we should have a national conversation about this. And I think Dianne Feinstein's last couple of years in office really should trigger that conversation. Sasha Bromsky, we want to thank you for being with us. West Coast correspondent for The Nation, author of several books, his forthcoming one on the Trump era. We'll link to your pieces for The Nation and Truth Out. When we come back, October is National Domestic Violence Awareness and Prevention Month. We'll look at the remarkable story of a domestic violence survivor, Tracy McCarter, a nurse and grandmother, jailed after her husband died of a stab wound when she defended herself during an altercation. Her imprisonment sparked outrage across the country. Back in 30 seconds. You are appreciated. When I was young, me and my mama had beef, 17 years old, kicked out on the streets. Though back at the time, I never thought I'd see a face. Ain't a woman alive that could take my mama's place. Suspended from school, was scared to go home. I was a fool with the big boys breaking all the rules. Shed tears with my baby sister. Over the years, we was bored and other little kids. 
Dear Mama by Tupac Shakur, 25 years after his killing, a suspect was arrested and charged in Las Vegas Friday with Tupac's 1996 murder. Dwayne Keith Davis wrote in his 2019 memoir, he provided the gun used in the drive-by shooting. Police said Davis, quote, was the shot caller for this group of individuals that committed this crime. That was the murder of Tupac Shakur. This is Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman. October's National Domestic Violence Awareness and Prevention Month. We spend the rest of the hour looking at how the criminal justice system disproportionately criminalizes black and brown survivors of domestic abuse and how activists have been organizing to win their freedom. The Vera Institute of Justice reports 77 percent of women in jail have experienced intimate partner violence. Here in New York, 90 percent of incarcerated women have faced domestic violence. And New York's own data shows a third of women imprisoned in New York for homicide were abused by the person they killed. Today, in her first broadcast interview, we're joined by Tracy McCarter, a survivor of domestic violence who was the focus of a campaign called I Stand with Tracy that led to a remarkable courtroom scene in New York City last November when Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg asked a judge to dismiss the second-degree murder charges against Tracy, who says she stabbed her estranged husband in self-defense when he attacked her in her New York City apartment in January 2020. It was Tracy who called 911, but she was immediately arrested. Tracy spent nearly seven months at the Rikers Island jail complex until she was released thanks to pressure from a successful solidarity campaign. This is Bragg's exchange with Judge Diane Kiesel. Listen closely. What you want to do now is to dismiss this case outright. Is that correct? Yes, Your Honor. The fact that we one This this remarkable scene played out after a campaign to support Tracy led by groups like Survived and Punished that included a call to pack the court. Her case drew attention after The New York Post reported on it. Then journalist Victoria Law contacted Tracy McCarter in prison and wrote a piece for Gothamist about her that was then shared by several candidates in the Manhattan DA's race, including Alvin Bragg, who you just heard from in that clip, who wrote, I stand with Tracy prosecuting a domestic violence survivor who acted in self-defense as unjust. But Bragg did not move immediately to drop the charges once he was elected. It took nearly another year of pressure. For more on the story, we're joined by Tracy McCarter herself. She's a registered nurse who just graduated um, from Columbia University with a master's and just received the Truthout Center for Grassroots Journalism's Keeley Shenwar Memorial Essay Prize for her essay, As a Black Woman Accused of Killing a White Man, I Was Never Innocent Until Proven Guilty. Tracy McCarter, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to Democracy Now! Um, I summarized your case, but most importantly, we want you to tell it in your own words. Take us back to 2020 until today. Thank you, Amy, and thank you for having me. You know, one of the first things that a person loses when they become a defendant is their voice. Uh, everyone tells you to keep quiet. Uh, and so I really welcome this opportunity. In March of 2020, I was living apart from my uh, spouse because he had relapsed on alcohol and he would be violent. And uh, when he was drinking, 
His violence would lead to attacks that included choking. As a nurse, I knew exactly how dangerous strangulation is to uh, anyone, to a domestic violence victim. Um, it is considered the most dangerous form of domestic violence. And when he wasn't drinking, I would try to say to him, listen, you can't do this. This is so dangerous to me, but he would drink. He would not be you know, able to be in control of himself. And so I had to move myself away. Uh, I was I had done that. I was living on the Upper West Side in an apartment by myself when he contacted me that day while I was at work. And I immediately shot off an email to his father to say, oh, my gosh, Jim is drinking again. I don't want to help him, but I don't know what to do. Um, and the reason I was so distressed is because Jim would come to my apartment regularly and uh, he would ring the doorbells of all the neighbors until someone let him in. He would come into the building. He would harass people. He would fall asleep or pass out in front of the door. And the building management was threatening to kick me out, um, even though I wasn't responsible for his behavior. Um, and so I felt desperate that uh, if I was going to find a way to escape him for good, I needed to help him. And so I let him into the apartment that night because he had asked me for help getting back to sober living. Uh, and instead of doing that, immediately upon entering my apartment, he started saying, give me money, give me money. And I was not going to give him money to help him keep drinking. And what followed was, you know, he rebuked an offer of medication that would have helped him. And he went further into my apartment, grabbed my purse, came back down the hallway, and we end up in a struggle over the purse. And uh, he then proceeds to attack me, which included a choking episode. And uh, it ended up that he came away with my purse. Um, he was by the door. I was further inside of the apartment, and I wanted him to get out. I was so desperate for him to leave. He wouldn't leave. Neighbors heard me yelling at him to get out, get out, not to take my purse. I grabbed a knife um, that was a, a um, long serrated knife. It was a, a bread knife because I thought I would scare him out of my apartment. It had, in fact, worked before that I was able to scare him um, into leaving me alone. Um, he approached me when he couldn't find my wallet in my purse, uh, and I had the knife and he, it started to scratch him. In fact, it didn't scare him. And that terrified me. He was getting more angry. And so I agreed to give him my wallet. When I put the knife away and looked for my wallet, it wasn't where I normally kept it in my scrub pants. And I pleaded with him that I, I didn't know where it was. And he didn't believe me. And he was coming at me again. And I was terrified that he was going to now choke me to death. And I grabbed another knife out of my kitchen drawer. And as he was coming toward me, he stumbled. I don't know if it was because he was drunk or he stumbled on things that were on the floor. When he stumbled, he impaled himself on the knife that I was holding for my protection because I had a right to defend myself. And that wound proved to be very grievous. It, it went into his lung, uh, punctured his lung, and he uh, did not survive that. Tracy McCarter, you called 911? 
Yes. I immediately began screaming for someone to call 911. And in fact, myself got my phone and called 911. A neighbor came into the apartment and helped me um, to uh, talk to 911 while I was trying to put pressure on the wound. As a nurse, I knew that was the only hope he had was to just keep pressure on that wound. Uh, and I, I was desperate to do that. Uh, and um, I talked to the 911 operator. My first words to the 911 operator was that I stabbed my husband on accident because in my mind, that's exactly what had happened. An accident had just happened. But I also go on to say that I was being attacked. Uh, the neighbor was yelling at me, asking me, what did I do? The 911 operator was querying me about what did I do? And I told them that I had, in fact, been attacked um, and uh, then shortly thereafter, the police came into my apartment and uh, then EMS and I was forced away from uh, helping to save his life, uh, put in handcuffs and I watched the um, police try to perform CPR on my husband, not putting pressure on the wound and was forced to watch them pump the blood out of his body even faster than it was already going and they wouldn't listen to me when I was trying to tell them how to save his life. So, Tracy, you end up being taken to Rikers. Um, I think this piece that you just won a major award mm -hmm. for, the Truset Center for Grassroots Journalism Award, as a black woman accused of killing a white man, I was never innocent until proven guilty. Um, did you see racist playing a major uh, role here in determining you being imprisoned at Riker for, what, half a year? Mm -hmm. You know, at first, I just—I didn't. I mean, I didn't think of myself as black and Jim as white. I was just the person who loved Jim. And part—a few months into being at Riker's, I remember being on the phone with a friend, and I said to her, oh, my God— I'm still here because Jim is white. They don't see me as a nurse. They don't see me as a person who had loving relationships with people, who was a good mother, who had never been in trouble. I was simply being viewed as a black woman who had killed a white man. And, you know, that was played out and confirmed for me um, on April 30th, 2020. I was in a bail hearing, requesting bail. And I thought, you know, they just don't know what happened. They just don't know how dangerous Jim was. And there was this video that I had ended up getting on my phone of him. And I told my lawyer, let them go on my phone, look at this video. And when they, when, when the, when ADA Sarah Sullivan sees this video, she's going to understand and I'm going to be going home. And so what happened was on in court that day, instead what ADA Sarah Sullivan says about that video was that, you know, it appeared that Jim was uh, he was attacking me. Uh, he, I'm sorry. He was yelling at me. He was in my face yelling at me, not attacking me. And at some point he comes up and he starts to pull my hair and the phone goes down and it's not entirely clear. But it it, it appears that he may have choked me, but it would have been for a short time. And I thought, excuse me, 
what do you like you can't choke someone there's no we know that from all of the you know the fact that police can't put people in choke holes anymore there is no safe amount of time to choke anyone and so this was um an ada in the domestic violence division who should be extremely aware that strangulation is the most dangerous form of domestic violence and instead she was saying that he was allowed to choke me for this brief time with it out being a, a big deal. And I want to be clear, that video was not from the night that I was attacked. It was from a night, the night before I, the time before I left him. And that's what convinced me I had to so, leave. And so, you know, he only got worse over time. Um, and so it just, it, it became clear to me that I wasn't going to be considered a person who, whose life was important enough to defend. And I can only make the assumption that it is because I am a black woman. And as Mariam Kaba, a very famous uh, uh, abolitionist and activist in this in this work, tells us we don't have selves to defend us, you know, brown and black women. And that the court makes that very clear. So <clears throat> you are put in Rikers at the height of the COVID pandemic. You're a nurse. You have this remarkable history. You had four kids uh, by the time you were 20. You were accepted to Yale University. You couldn't go because you couldn't afford it. Um, you were at the time, uh, right, uh, getting your master's degree at Columbia, but you're in Rikers mm -hmm. and a movement starts to grow. This grassroots movement led by survived and punished. If you can talk about the significance of the people who fought for your case to be known and ultimately um, one of the men who would stand with you was running for district attorney. You talked about the ADA against you, but Alvin Bragg and he mm -hmm. tweeted hashtag I stand with Tracy and he ultimately won. Though it would take a mm -hmm. year um, before he would drop the murder charges against you, Tracy. The significance I want of that to be activism. Very I want to be very clear that my case was started under Cy Vance and continued under um, uh, Alvin Bragg. And so prosecutors aren't different just because there's a new one, um, what I saw, not from what I saw. And so there was this group of people um, who started by just sending me a letter at Rikers. And I had no idea at the time that anyone other than my family and my lawyers knew I was at Rikers. And it said, we have this information about other women. We have expertise that we can leverage to help you. Will you allow us to do that? And so I consented and they contacted my family. They helped us to understand the court process because my lawyer, um, my first lawyer, wasn't very um, good at, at doing that, I felt. Um, and so they also started talking about how to get this case, you know, in the media. How do we get people to understand what is happening to me? And my lawyers, lawyers aren't very uh, pleased with these things. They want decorum, right? We're supposed to just follow the rules. And the rules say you don't talk about your case prior to, you know, appearing in court. But after six months at Rikers, I knew this was my only hope to get out of there. And so they started to meet weekly with my family on the outside. I wasn't initially involved with meeting with them weekly. But when I got out, um, we started to, to meet. Uh, they were the ones that got 
Victoria Law interested in my case, and because of her, the she journalist. wrote a story, and it was picked up by the Wall Street Journal. And I quite frankly think it embarrassed the office of Cy Vance, and that is the only reason I was allowed to to um, leave Rikers on an electronic monitor. And as you say, there was this campaign going for a new district attorney. Uh, Cy Vance was not going to run again. And several of the uh, candidates made some sort of comment about my case. But Alvin Bragg made a very strong statement that, you know, domestic violence survivors should not be prosecuted for acts of self-defense. So when he was elected in, in um, the fall of, of 2021, we thought, OK, well, he's going to he's heard the story. He knows, you know, some of the facts. My lawyers asked, can we have a meeting with him to, to give him all the facts? Um, I actually had a meeting where I sat down for two hours in his office and explained to him exactly what happened, exactly the history of my my um, uh, relationship. And walked him through that night. They had access to all of our evidence, to our experts. Uh, they were allowed to talk to. They had our entire case. And what happened instead was he offered me a plea. And I was not willing to take a plea. They did get it down to an Alfred plea that was, you know, would allow me to keep my license. And by that time, I was on the record as being suicidal. I needed desperately to get to treatment. And so I said, fine, if I can take an Alfred plea, which is one in which you do not have to say you're guilty because I'm not guilty of a crime. And it would end um, in a repleter where it would be a misdemeanor at the end of a year and I would get to keep my nursing license. Fine, I'll take it. And we go to court and Judge Kiesel, who had my case in front of her, said absolutely not. She would not take it because it was she, her words were speaking to the um, to the prosecutor. You charged her with murder. And you want this like and, and, and saying like you want this to end in a misdemeanor. She said that it was um, indicated it was too lenient and she was not going to take it. Now, by this time, which was absolutely amazing because she was known as an advocate every time for I domestic had to go to violence court every 60 days. So um, I want to bring into this conversation uh, Brooklyn College Law Professor Jocelyn Simonson, um, who has written the book Radical Acts of Courage, How Ordinary People Are Dismantling Incarceration. Uh, Professor Simonson, if you can talk about how it was this grassroots movement that ultimately um, pushed uh, um, Alvin Bragg, the Manhattan DA's office, to drop the murder charges entirely. Sure. Uh, good morning. Thank you for having me. Uh, so you played some audio earlier of Alvin Bragg asking Judge Kiesel to dismiss the case. But that only happened after he was in office for nearly a year, not keeping his promise to dismiss the charges against Tracy. And what you can't see when we hear the audio is that courtroom was absolutely full of people wearing red T-shirts and red hoodies that said two things on it. One was stand with Tracy, because this group had collectively worked uh, both to support Tracy and to let the public know about her case. And it also said free them all, 
because Survived and Punished New York is a group that works with individuals on their collective defense campaigns, but also connects what's happening to the larger criminalization of survivors and especially of black women. And so this group was able to support Tracy, to let the public know what was happening, and to connect what was happening to larger beliefs in the injustice of what was happening. And that's what my book talks about, about different ways that people are collectively helping people who are being criminalized, and by doing so, actually showing that there are other understandings of justice and safety. In Tracy's case, that justice would have been not arresting her in the first place, but rather supporting her uh, during a trauma that is unimaginable to so many of us. And we're going to continue this discussion uh, after the broadcast and post it at democracynow.org. You're listening to Jocelyn Simonson, law professor at Brooklyn College. Her new book is called Radical Acts of Justice, How Ordinary People Are Dismantling Incarceration. Uh, we're also going to continue talking with Tracy McCarter, domestic violence survivor, nurse, and grandmother. She just graduated from Columbia University. I'm Amy Goodman. Tune into Democracy Now. Happy birthday to Paul Powell.